Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Political Life. I'm your guest host, Chris Massey. I probably didn't sound like Jim O'Brien. Uh, Jim will be back next week with another episode. Uh, this should be fun, though, uh, I hope. If it's not, you can direct your concerns to Jim uh, and question his <laughs> choice. Uh, we're joined by two great guests today. Actually, I'm another co-host and a guest. Uh, I want to welcome back to the pod David Mack. Uh, David is... A, Joining us fresh off of Ski Week in Northern California. How's it going, DMAC? It's fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here, and I cannot believe he's turned the show over to you. Yeah, me either, to be totally honest with you. But then, you know, I think we're pretty good. We'll see. This is reckless. We'll reckless in the extreme. Yeah, yeah, typical for politics at this point. <laughs> uh, so DMAC was the was most recently a senior vice president of policy and public affairs at Ease. And you can find uh, Jim's interview of uh, David and Katie Kincaid. Uh, from uh, prior episodes, and he was also, previous to that, Senior Director of Public Affairs at Lyft, where we work together. Um, we're also joined by David Owen. David is the Head of Policy at Chef and formerly Head of Policy Strategy at Airbnb and is joining us from San Francisco. David, welcome. Okay. Great to be here. Two, the now, two Davids. Yeah, seriously, I was about to say, like, where do we... I'm going to just go with DMAC and David. Let's, there you let's go. Make it, let's just make it clear right uh right from right from the get-go so david you've got a really interesting background so we've all worked in in government in some way uh and you and i know at the local level in california um and we've both been in kind of we've all been in this policy space give uh can you give the audience a bit of your background and a little bit about chef sure um so for me personally i, I sort of grew up in san francisco politics um started working in City Hall here in San Francisco, had the pleasure of working for the president of our city council, we call it Board of Supervisors here. Um, and uh, after that, I went to law school, um, never really planned to become a lawyer. I think that's a pretty common story for folks in, in our business, seemed like a good thing to do. But I, I actually got pretty interested in medical marijuana um, while I was in law school. And now here in 2022, you can actually talk about that, right? Uh, that was the, that was the blip in my resume for a while. I, I represented heavily regulated emerging industries, um, as a, as a young lawyer, um, but really fascinating opportunity to watch, um, you know, a new industry emerge from the shadows. Um, you know, something that has been around for a long time and government didn't know whether to, you know, ban it, ignore it, regulate it, embrace it, um, or in the case of California and marijuana, all of the above. So um, that was a really exciting opportunity. I then moved into uh, traditional government relations work, and one of my earliest clients was Airbnb, um, and represented them in the Bay Area for a couple of years, and then went in-house uh, to help build the policy team there um, across the U.S., and, and then eventually working on issues around the globe. So I uh, did that for almost five years. Really exciting opportunity again to work on uh, you know an issue that similar to a lot of what both of you have done, um, you know, involved an activity that again had been going on in some form or fashion for a really long time and fell outside of the lines of uh, the sort of traditional rules um, of of what government regulated in, in municipal spaces. 
Um, so, you know, really terrific opportunity to help sort of watch that whole journey of, of, of Airbnb's policy development and just the, the kind of embrace and, and normalization, legitimization, really, of, uh, of people sharing extra space in their homes uh, really all around the world. Um, did that for a while um, and most recently uh, joined a company called Chef, um, S-H-E-F. Um, we are uh, a marketplace and delivery platform for local homemade food. Um, we help talented local cooks who are food safety certified connect with customers and earn meaningful income selling their homemade dishes. Um, and it's really, you know, again, it, it's the it's this exciting opportunity to be involved in, in something where we're creating opportunity um, for folks who need it. We're connecting people with cuisines that they may not otherwise be able to obtain where they live for a variety of reasons um, that are uh, affordable and authentic um, and letting people, you know, earn money doing something that they're really passionate about. So um, really exciting company, uh, uh, you know, and folks cooking for one another is, is nothing new. Um, yeah. But, you know, we can get into some of the history uh, of the regulations and the policy around the issue. It's, it's, it's actually super fascinating, but um, really amazing company and, and terrific community that I get to work with now. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. I, I should I should mention at the outset that as a operating partner at Craft Ventures, we uh, we invested early in Chef and you and I already knew one another. And then we got the opportunity to work together again. Um, you know, going back to your your history and and getting to Airbnb, like what what was it that got you to Airbnb in the first place? I know you represented them, but what was the the driver for what made you want to actually go in-house? Yeah. You know, for me, I think it was my career trajectory. I enjoyed everything that I've done, but it didn't really make sense to me until I was working with Airbnb. And I thought, gosh, you know, this seems to be like the, the, the thread that binds all of these different experiences together. You know, I was inside local government. I'd worked on political campaigns before that you know, federal races, state races. I managed my first state Senate race when I was, 23. God, who knows why anyone allowed me to do that? But, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it, when I learned, I remember I first read about a story about Airbnb here in our San Francisco paper. And I thought, geez, one, this is really interesting. Two, this has so many problems. And three, I kind of understand them all. I've, I've worked uh, around a lot of land use issues, kind of understand enforcement, the tax issues, sort of the criminal aspect of these things, right, to the extent the government enforces the law that way. Um, and it was just really this remarkable place where all of these different things came together, um, but also just on an issue that I, I found really compelling. You know, at the end of the day, the company was born out of the great you know, economic disruptions in 2008 and 2009. Um, and you just had a lot of people who, um, you know, a combination of people who were trying to make ends meet by utilizing an, uh, an asset, their homes, that's typically their greatest liability um, and doing it in this creative way and, and also creating a nice travel experience for people who like me, I love traveling that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent, uh, I've, I've, was a backpacker and, um, you know, it's not for everybody. And Airbnb has definitely grown and matured and has a very, you know, broad offering of different types of, of travel experiences now. But for me in the early days, that really spoke to me. And so, you know, the opportunity to actually go work for a company um, on solving some of these really interesting problems and, and kind of helping government think through and helping the company think through all of these things was just really exciting to me. That's great. That's great. I mean, it seems between... Lyft and I'll just use our examples here that um, that are most similar. But between 
Lyft and Airbnb and Chef and even Ease, there's a become like much more of a focus on your own assets, your home, your life at home, whether you're using your car to be able to uh, to make money uh, that's needed to pay the bills or you need things delivered to your home or you want to be you're an aspiring chef and you want to be able to cook what you would normally cook for your family because you're proud of that, whether it be a cultural or professional experience. Why do we think, I guess this is a question for, I'll start with DMAC. Like, why do you think uh, there has been such a shift in, in these kinds of, uh, these kinds of focus platforms and as difficult of a question as that, that is, I mean, that is a big question. What does that mean for how local governments are looking at this stuff? Well, I mean, I think David hit it earlier. Uh, it's a combination of two things that really kind of led to the blossoming of all of these technologies. It was, you know, 2008 financial crisis, people looking for ways to make ends meet with what they had, which is great. Entrepreneurialism is always positive. And it was also the introduction of, you know, uh, iPhones and, and mobile platforms that made a lot of it more accessible. Like the, the marriage of the technology and the need um, was uh, a great field that people were able to plant with all kinds of uh services that people were doing, but had never really been scaled. Um, Airbnb is one of the best stories uh, in history in terms of, of watching people be able to take advantage of that. Um, and then in terms of policy, it was it was a classic study of um, the government just not anticipating what people were going to do. And always that delta, that, that middle ground where you're doing it before they've gotten the chance to kind of catch up is where uh, we all earn our stock and trade and have kind of the most fun. So that's, that's really what happened, I think, in Blossom. Um, and I, I think you could even like, you know, this is a question I've, I've got for, for David, I think, to even compound on this a little bit. So if that was kind of what started around the 08 session, um, now we find ourselves, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming out of uh, COVID here. Um, but really looking back, I think it'll be interesting as we do analysis for what kinds of patterns and new markets were actually um, able to be supported uh, while people were restricted at home. And I think of fantastic services like Chef. Um, I think of in the, in the case of ease, obviously delivering cannabis to people's door, um, you know, cannabis was delivered uh, or cannabis delivery was declared an essential service uh, during uh, COVID. That would never have happened. Or even you see like a blossoming of other telemedicine platforms like Mindbloom and others um, and the suspension of the, of the Ryan Hate Act at the federal level. So um, I guess do you the, the question ultimately is um, how do you feel the current environment as it relates to COVID has helped or hindered uh, the work that you're seeing at Chef? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think that that all I, I agree with that analysis entirely. And I would say, you know, really two things. One, as kind of a retrospective or a comparison, really, between this moment and, you know, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, um, you know, as a result of uh, government's experience with Lyft and Airbnb and Uber and, you know, the, the scooters, um, they're, they're much quicker to act, right? Yeah. When these emerging technologies or, you know, these new sort of activities that aren't in, envisioned in their scope of regulation come about, they take action more quickly. It's, it, you know, the, the days of tech companies kind of just launching a new service that's completely outside of the law, um, you know, these two-sided marketplaces and, and just, you know, scaling until government can't catch up anymore. Uh, th those days, I think, are, are largely behind us. I mean, you never know what the next technology is, but I think one of the big lessons from the last, you know, 15 years really is that you you just, you, you have to be mindful as a, as a private company um, of these regulations and laws and rules in ways that those, you know, previous operators, you know, really because their, their users were launching these services in a lot of places just 
um, weren't, weren't uh, as much, I guess you'd say. Um, and so I think that's one, one key difference. Um, but, but absolutely. I mean, the, the, the immense, there, there's, you know, let's be clear, COVID has been a nightmare for government, for people, for the economy, for incomes. It's highlighted, you know, income inequities in, in so many failings in, in kind of our society. Um, and, you know, out of all of that, we have seen government actually moving more quickly on all the things that you described. I mean, I think of just pause on telemedicine for a moment, just the pitched battles in the, the late teens around um, really kind of incremental changes that, um, you know, different participants in the market were trying to seek to, and Chris can probably speak to this better than even the rest of us, but really, you know, trying to crack open the ability to do any type of telemedicine and, you know, dealing with just firm opposition from boards of medicine and, and different incumbents mm-hmm. in the country. Um, and what a difference, you know, two and a half years makes. I mean, it was a horrible experience that, again, hopefully we're coming out of, but um, we have seen a ton of change and government out of necessity has everything from, you know, dining on streets. Like I live here in San Francisco and when we talk about, you know, building a new building, let alone letting restaurants serve people on the sidewalk, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, regardless of how you feel about cocktail delivery and, and serving alcohol. And, I feel and good about it, personally. Drinks. The fact that you can do that now is monumental yeah. um, because that would have been 10 years of endless debate and it never would have happened, right? So um, we have seen a lot of change. You can feel good or bad about the change that we've seen, um, but it's come very quickly. And so I think, um, you know, if there is any, you know, good run out, at least from government, uh, from this experience, it is... You know, some of this stuff that we feel like is beneficial sticks around and we recognize that we can actually come up with new solutions to some urban problems. um, And hopefully it shouldn't take a a catastrophic global pandemic to get us there. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with that more. I also think that there's been a wholesale change in how governments are communicating with each other on these kinds of things. I mean, previously, you know, you'd have a mayor have a conversation at U.S. Conference of Mayors with one other mayor, and it may spread a little bit, but it doesn't get that much traction. Um, you've got AGs that pretty much talk to each other very regularly about uh, cross-border issues. That was probably the most uh, uh, that was probably the group that talked the most about these things. But one thing that I think was disrupted was. Uh, in a good way was the communication efforts between governments in order to have a clearer perspective about what is here and what is coming next in order to have a better idea for how to respond. So I guess that bringing it back to Chef, what are you guys seeing as you're uh, launching new markets, as you're growing across the country and growing your footprint in terms of the understanding of what you're bringing to the marketplace and its value so as not to get maybe stomped down by any incumbents or uh, any maybe, let's say, entrenched regulatory body uh, or regulatory body with maybe some entrenched thinking. Um, how are you guys viewing it? How are you growing? What's the plan at this point? Yeah. Um, and, and just to clarify, you know, we are extremely mindful of the patchwork quilt of regulations that exist. Um, you know, when it comes to food, food service and food safety, it is a very regulated space. Um, and you know, everyone who uses our, our marketplace, um, you know, certifies that they are following the law in their jurisdiction. And we are actively involved in trying to expand the scope of those laws in various places around the country to create more opportunity for folks 
you know, to cook at home. Um, but I think, what, you know, to, to answer your question, what we are seeing is is definitely an acknowledgement. Um, you know, there, there, there are very few places where I go and talk to, you know, to policymakers or regulators who don't understand the value um, of, of what we're doing. And in fact, over the last 20 years, every state in the country now, New Jersey was the last one to join the party just last year, has legalized home cooking in some form or fashion. Many states have, you know, pretty narrow um, laws called cottage food laws that allow you to make you know, things like Rice Krispie treats, things that don't require time and temperature control in your home and sell them in various places and ways throughout the state. Um, and so that's the law of the land everywhere. And then some states have now gone much further um, and we have a variety of different examples. And so, you know, it, it's really um, what's been heartening to me is that, uh, you know, this doesn't feel like we're disrupting an incumbent industry. In fact, if anything, you know, this is an you know, our, we view our business as an incubator for future restaurant operators. I mean, so many uh, people who use our service, I think more than, you know, 85% are women, um, you know, more than 85, 80% uh, identify as immigrant or, or, or recent, you know, immigrant background. Um, and, you know, for at least 50% of the folks on our, who are using our platform as, as cooks, English is not their first language. So, um, you know, this is a, a community of folks who would like to work in restaurants or in fact do and are earning extra income by, you know, by using a service like ours. Um, and it, it's not cheap to start a restaurant and the vast majority of new restaurants fail in the first year of operation. So, you know, what we're doing is actually helping people who want to move into that industry as operators, one, just earn the startup cash to be able to do it because many folks can't get it anywhere else. Um, we're also giving them experience to, you know, experiment with menus and um, with, you know, how much food do I buy relative to what I'm making, um, you know, without having to manage a staff and be responsible for making, you know, payroll every day. Um, so, you know, when we're able to communicate with with restaurant associations and with regulators and policymakers around who our community is and, you know, what they're trying to do, you know, I, I like to say to folks in the restaurant industry, or if you're at an association, create a whole new class of membership for these folks, right? These are people who want to be part of mm -hmm. your organization and, and who may well at some point in the near future be part of it as a restaurant operator. So let's help them on that journey. Um, and it, it, I think that resonates, you know, understandably uh, health regulators have a lot of questions, right? They, these are folks who, you know, are not paid for creativity. They're not rewarded for creativity, right? They are, they are folks who have a list of things uh, to check. And, and, you know, they have a very important remit, right? They're keeping us safe. And many of the laws that they're enforcing haven't been significantly updated for a really long time. Sound familiar? Um, so I think our job is to, to help folks understand, you know, one, there is a safe way to do this. Two, we have states already who are doing this. And, you know, this is America. So uh, everyone needs a red and a blue example of something. And luckily, we have those, right? California was the first state right out of the box to do this um, in 2018. Um, very, um, you know, very regulation-intensive model, right? Permits, inspections, fees, um, you know. And that's great. It's a it's a system that while it needs probably some fine tuning because it's new, it's working really well. And then you've got states like Utah that have adopted a very different approach um, and also, you know, have had no significant food safety issues in either of those jurisdictions related to people cooking at home and selling food. So, you know, we have models that we can share with with these folks to help them understand kind of what 
what the world can look like if they're if they're willing to have the conversation. And and, and thankfully, in most places, they are. Yeah, it was interesting to me is, you know, like um, American food, not really a thing, right? Like st- I love steaks and burgers and fries as much as ever as anybody else, but the best restaurants that I, that, that I go to locally typically have some level of an ethnic design to it, or, uh, you know, have, uh, are, 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 you know, really interesting menus that you otherwise wouldn't think of from the typical, uh, kind of bar down the street or pub down the street. Um, you know, chef is doing some really interesting things and has some great chefs. And I think really leaning into the opportunities to try different cuisines, uh, that you otherwise may not be able to, to try. I guess here's a question. What's your, what's your favorite dish so far that you've ordered off of chef? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I am, I am definitely like, I'll, I'll order from a different chef um, as often as I can, but I do have some of my, my favorite go-tos. There is a, an Isan, Isan Thai chef um, who lives down the peninsula here in the Bay area Um who cooks absolutely amazing sort of Northern Thai food. Um, it will, will burn, burn your face off some of it, but it's, uh, it's totally worthwhile. And chef Pia, not that, you know, if you're ever listening to this podcast and you're in the Bay area, check out chef and, and look for her. She makes truly amazing food. I will check that out. Also, I'd like to point out, uh, as the audience can see, Chris Massey is slugging away at a Coke heavy over there. So no one knows that his, his palate is all that discriminating. Um, just like pulling back the parallels um you know i think another hallmark of that period the airbnb lyft uber period was it had been done before but i think for the first time in scale um organizations were bringing kind of full campaign apparatus to policy questions i think the way it used to be done was you'd hire a, a gr person and they'd have conversations on behalf of the company um what we can all know is obviously a truism is that uh elected officials really aren't doing favors for companies, but if you can persuade them that the community at large will benefit, uh, they obviously will take a different point of view. And in order to uh, convince them that the community at large will benefit, you obviously need to have an apparatus in place to do that. Um, The total campaign spread, communications, uh, social impact, community, grass tops, all of that was really born in that period. Um, Obviously, you're a, a master practitioner of this and Chef is making... Uh, you know, great hires, you're adding Amy in there, you're adding Emma in there, you're bringing all of those elements online. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, as an expert in this, what it what it means to bring a campaign type experience to a, to a corporate environment or to a business environment and why that is? Yeah, I, I think that's all true. And I would also add, you know, working at, at companies that are focused on <clears throat> engaging so much at state and especially local level is really just kind of also another new legacy of kind of that era um, of, of government relations that we all kind of grew out of. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that government and, and, you know, government officials, elected officials, they, you know, are pretty savvy to all of these things and they're, they're pretty savvy to traditional government relations. Um, and they really need and want to understand how does this impact people who live in my district? Right. I mean, I, I wasn't a lobbyist 25 years ago. I'm not side-eyeing you, Chris, but, um, wow. I don't what those conversations looked like back in the day. Um, but it doesn't even, even early in my career, you know, it wasn't, uh, I feel like quite as much about, 
um, sort of the impact on at the on the ground level of, of people when you were talking about any particular policy issue, and and now it's really like just table stakes. I think to help help yes. an elected official understand like okay, here's what I'm advocating for. Um, and here's why it, it matters to people who live in your district or it should matter to them. Right. Um, yes. And so I think, you know, finding people who are impacted by an issue who live somewhere, you know, it, it's smart, but it's also it's it's I think the right way to approach policy to the extent that, you know, we think that our government and its actions should be reflective of people who, you know, live in, you know, uh, we're in a representative democracy here. So um, the fact that we get to be in the private sector, but also find a way to connect issues um, that matter to people, to their elected representatives in new and creative ways um, to make change and ideally, you know, create more opportunity for those people um, or, you know, improve their lives is, is actually kind of really exciting. And it sounds a little pie in the sky, um, you know, but, but I think it's, it's true because I just don't mm -hmm. think you're going to be effective if you're not able to make that connection for, for elected officials, you know, and, and regulators and other stakeholders as part of the process. And, yeah, and, and I think for the, you know, I got to say, I think Chef and you and, and team are doing just an absolutely masterful job at this. Everything is leading forward for the opportunity for uh, the immigrant communities. You talked about women and folks that are being empowered and coming into a space and drawing more. This is all like front and center in all of the messaging that you can see in Chef. And it also has the benefit of being true, which is fantastic. So just congratulations to you and the team on doing just uh, a phenomenal job in that and being um, excellent at communicating the message. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it really it's 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 just a yeah, like you said, it, it all has the benefit of being true. So it's just a question of how do we, you know, connect the dots for people who are in positions to, to you know, make change that can mm -hmm. further benefit the lives of people who, you know, we're, we're interacting with as a company every day. Um, and, you know, when it comes to people cooking at home and providing it for, for other folks in their communities. I mean, this is something that, you know, obviously has been going on forever, right? I mean, people have been eating mm -hmm. as long as people have been around. Um, but we have a lot of, you know, communities in this country that lack access to, you know, to quality, affordable food. And so, um, you know, to say nothing of, uh, you know, we have a lot of, of communities that, um, you know, lack access to great food that reminds them of, of, of home, of where they grew up. And so, you know, being able to provide those things um, to a variety of, of different audiences and, and, and consumers around the country, um, you know, it, is really exciting. And again, you know, um, you know, having someone talk to an elected official and say, like, I have to go to a commissary kitchen and, and make this food and, you know, like I could cook for 20 people and have them over for dinner at my house. But the moment I charge them $5, it becomes a regulatory problem. So like maybe right. I fix that, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to do exactly the same thing that I was doing before. Um, I'm just going to make a little bit of extra revenue doing it. Um, and, you know, let's let's figure this out. This is not the end of the world, right? People have been having, I mean, if, if I were cooking for people, then I think government should be concerned because I don't think I'm <laughs> to that. It's not for safety reasons, for quality, yeah. but, um, you know, luckily... We have a, a, a lot of talented chefs on our. On our well, platform. if you if you haven't experienced it, DMAC makes a really fantastic steak product. Oh. Mm. Mm. There you go. So you know, I think DMAC brought up a good point in terms of you know chefs' sort of purpose and and how you've been a purpose driven company in terms of your marketing and your uh, and your your how you treat your chefs. What's the what's the backstory? How did how did chef get how did chef get going? Um, you know, what did, what was it that, uh, your founders, Alvin and Joey 
saw that uh, they said we've got a we've got an opportunity here to create something really impactful. Yeah, I mean, great question. So, you know, both Alvin and Joey, who are the two co-founders of the company, um, are are children of of immigrant families, uh, both you know first generation, and you know the in particular Alvin's story always resonates with me. You know, he he grew up as a as a child of of Persian immigrants. Um, you know, he grew up in a motel. Um, and, uh, you know, he remembers very specifically, very viscerally an experience where his, um, his, his parents began a restaurant. I mean, and they scraped the money together. They, they saved, um, and it was not cheap and it was really supposed to be the thing that created, you know, significant change and opportunity for their family. Um, and unfortunately, like most, uh, you know, first time restaurant operators, it was not successful. Um, and it was, you know, a pretty significant experience for, for his family growing up. And, you know, as he moved into his adult years and, um, you know, ended up actually working in the Obama White House. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that he was able to do during that experience was join a delegation um, to Turkey to visit the border to, you know, to really see the impact of the refugee crisis that was caused by, um, you know, the ongoing civil war in Syria. And, you know, while he was there, he saw a lot of children who, you know, he identified with and thought, you know, there, but for the grace of God, this could be me. And so when he came back, he really started thinking, you know, how can I, what can I do here? Right. How can I make change for folks, um, you know, who are coming to this country and who have stories that are, that are not totally dissimilar from mine and, and, you know, um, started going to, you know, sort of entrepreneurial meetups and, and really something that kept coming up was just people who were, you know, looking for opportunity. And the thing that they knew how to do was cook. They couldn't leave the home, right. They, you know, had childcare obligations or other, other things. So, you know, really this is what they could do, what they were passionate about and, and a way for them to make money and just started looking into it. And, and so again, you know, one of the first things he's a lawyer, right. So one of the first things that he did was we start looking at the, the law and regulation. And, and we can also talk about how great it is to have, you know, a leader uh, at a company like this who is so focused on, on law and regulation and understands, right? Because I think you can also see the different trajectory for a company like ours in just, just in terms of thinking about those issues and, and being mindful of, you know, how we, how we address them. But, um, you know, in, in any case, that was, that was really how the company was, was born, um, was trying to sort of solve for that problem. Um, and, you know, to, to build kind of this this community in, in a variety of different states now around the country um, who, depending, again, on what the, the state of the regulations look like, are, are doing this in all different ways um, and sharing their passions and making extra money. Um, you know, and again, like that just creates the opportunity for someone like me to come and join what was already, you know, a, a pretty amazing journey for a company that's only a couple of years old, Um and and try and help make that change and, and tell that story to, to the folks who need to hear it so that we can, you know, clear the pathway for these people and, and improve the existing laws that are on the books already um, and try and do it a lot faster than, than some of the changes come in the past. So it's a, well, it's d- d- unpack a little bit. I think you bring up a really good point about the value of having founders that understand their purpose and their mission and its impact uh, to sort of the main street aspects of, of the consumer um, and can connect that and also understand the regulatory aspects. Um, you know, 
I guess this is a question for both of you, um, because we've all worked for founders that are really deep into the regulatory space and the in the government relations space, and we've been blessed from that perspective. Like, what what do we think is most important? Is it uh, is it a founder that has that understanding, or is it a founder that um, kind of gives you the space to build out what you need, or is it a combination of both? Man, what a what a we should just do this topic in itself, right? The, the role of a founder. But um, I mean, so what? But Chesky obviously understood bringing in Lahane, obviously a major transitional moment for Airbnb. Uh, I think with Lyft, obviously, uh, you know, John Zimmer was uh, basically our patron internally. He understood completely the necessity for it. Um, and I think first and foremost, it's, it's necessary because operating a campaign inside a company does become quite expensive, right? And it can be at a certain point in any company's trajectory, you'll start to get the questions about what is the specific ROI of this? What is the ROI of buying pizzas for this organization? Um, and you can't necessarily translate that into uh, an immediate answer. You just have to have a little bit a founder or uh, leadership at the C-suite that understands that all these things are necessary and you've got great practitioners in place to do it. Um, I think companies that don't have that, um, have two choices. They can either kind of follow the work of others or just kind of think everything will happen by chance. And generally that doesn't work well. Right. Um, especially, you know, we have, we had a saying on our team was always like, um, you know, you should do your work when the, when the body's on the operating table, right. If people are in there playing with the regs, doing the things, even if the business isn't prepared to get and launch there immediately, if the body's open and on the operating table, get in there and do the best that you can to shape the market um, while you can, because reopening it later is very expensive. Um, but that requires an executive that's willing to put in that investment to do the work. Um, and it takes a very specialized kind of executive to understand that. You know, David, obviously, with with Alvin as your co-founder, you have got a, a brilliant opportunity, um, you know, kind of to be free and do all the things that are necessary. Um, but, man, that is such a critical thing in, in having success in all of our careers, I think. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point, and you know, I mean, look, you know, at Airbnb, Brian, um, he's a designer, right? He was a creative um, who built this amazing, um, very successful enterprise, um, and I, and I'll say, it, like, you know, he had no legal background, but really kind of got it and was always curious and thoughtful. That's not to say that things weren't challenged, um, and there wasn't a learning curve involved, but um, you know really was, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, Chris, your original question, um, having a leader who is, uh, you know, smart, obviously understands the importance of this, um, and, and curious and willing to learn, um, you know, is, is whether they are, you know, I, I'm sure there are plenty of, of lawyers out there who can be a total pain in the butt. Um, and, you know, maybe not, not see the value of, uh, you know, of, of understanding and investing in, in policy and in talking to policymakers and in working in that space. Um, so, you know, it can probably go either way, but, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had the benefit of leaders who both have that background and don't, but I think share, um, a, a, a knowledge, an acknowledgement that, you know, this is an important thing. Um, and that, you know, at least in both of these spaces, that government is an important partner, right? Like we're not always going to see eye to eye on everything, but you know, this is, um, you know, no knock to some of the other companies in in various spaces who have very aggressive um, and you know combative kind of postures with government. That's really, you know, thankfully it's not my personality and approach, and I, I don't, you know, look 
maybe it's successful, maybe it's not, but it's just not kind of the path that, you know, I've ever had to sort of choose, um, and, and, you know, and, and I think it's, it's a testament to the types of organizations that I've had the benefit of, of working for where, you know, it's like, again, we're not always going to see eye to eye and there's going to be opportunities where we have to disagree and we have to do it respectfully and we can do it firmly, you know, and we're going to go and, and run hard at something that we think is, is right. Um, and, you know, and I think with, with Airbnb and, you know, with the change of law over the last, even though I was a bit player relative to marijuana, I think the world has sort of validated that these were the, you were on the right side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, it's, it's nice in hindsight to be able to look back and, and say, okay, that feeling that I had, you know, that this was all heading in a direction that was right. And we just sort of had to kind of help people understand that, um, you know, it's nice to, to, to feel that that's right. Um, you know, and I, again, I think in terms of what I, the work that we're doing now, it's sort of a similar thing. The, the energy is already there. The law, the, the basic framework of the law is already there. And we just have an opportunity to, to improve on it, which is great. And sort of a, a new position to be in. That wasn't the case in some of my, you know, many of our previous experiences here. Yeah. Can just to, to build on this, cause this is super fun. Um, there, there do come times of course, when you have to get a little bit more, uh, firm uh and you do find yourself at, at loggerheads with with the government um i mean you your your background is so fascinating and you went over it kind of quickly but for folks that aren't from california you know you you worked with uh with supervisor peskin if i recall correctly um he obviously is a very iconic california san francisco politician oftentimes towing a line that can be seen as antagonistic to some in the kind of tech community i hate that term tech but that's true so you've got that interesting background um, so you understand where it comes from DoorDash, Airbnb, many others have ultimately had to enter into litigation against cities, right? So Airbnb sued New York, if I remember correctly, um, DoorDash and others have, you know, relatively recently sued San Francisco for the imposition of price caps on delivery. Um, tell us a little bit about how you talk to your C-suite when the diplomacy is over and it is time to go a little bit harder. Um, how you maybe partner with your legal department in there, just a little bit more for folks who haven't had that experience yet when you do the, the talking is over and it is time to get a little bit spicier. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, well, I, I think one thing to note is that the talking should never be over, even when things are spicy, yeah. right? And, and that's maybe the difference of how various folks approach these types of engagements. But I think they're, you know, that to me, litigation is never where you want to start. I mean, I don't know, there maybe are some spaces where that, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, once you're at that point, it means that traditional diplomacy is kind of broken down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, in some ways, litigation, if handled the right way, can be a helpful way to have uh, a conversation. You know, I, I, um, it, there are there are opportunities when, you know, you are in a sort of a court monitored mediation or something, you're behind closed doors um, and there aren't. You know, you can actually, you know, everyone can sort of de-escalate and just sort of talk through the issues without, um, you know, as much of, you know, it's like you're, it's court ordered secrecy around these types of processes. So that's, you know, they're intended to foster the types of conversations that are going to result in, um, in actually coming to solutions. So, um, you know, it's, for me, it's definitely not somewhere that you want to start, um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's somewhere that if, if you really feel like, you know, there's, there's a right uh, and it is, it's, you know, you've, you've tried your best and, you know, this is where you're at. Um, it's a, it's a more aggressive posture, but, um, I do think that, you know, conversation 
should continue. Um, and, you know, most of these types of litigation end up getting resolved outside mm -hmm. of, you know, the moment where a gavel comes down or a, a jury, you know, comes to a conclusion. Um, they all get, they typically get settled, right? So this is just kind of uh, an escalation of the conversation, you know, in a way that does feel, you know, it will, you'll get the headlines, right? Like there's a lawsuit between the company and the government. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that is, uh, everyone has to be comfortable with the fact that that's going to be what's, what's talked about and, and how you're viewed now as someone who's suing government or being sued by government. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 but I do think that they're, if, if handled the right way, if you, if you sort of keep in mind, like, what is a reasonable solution? And I always try and put myself in the position of government. I've been inside, I've been on the other side of the equation. Um, and I understand the pressures and motivators for folks who are on the other side of those negotiations. And so it's, it's a question of you know, like, what's going to get them there? What's reasonable? What are they trying to accomplish? How do they view us? You know, what are their, what are their constituents? What are their, their key allies telling them about us? Mm -hmm. uh, we're saying about the other side and, and how do we sort of steer this towards a place where, you know, they can be proud of the outcome, you know, we can live with the outcome and, you know, you don't always get there. Right. But I think that's, you know, you don't, you don't just want to run in guns blazing for the sake of doing it. I mean, those, those companies exist. And when I was out in the private sector, you know, as a government relations person on, on contract, those were clients that you didn't want to work with. Right. Cause they're, that's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a successful strategy. It's also just not a fun way to get through life. Ironically, those are also the companies that needed you most. Um, yeah. but, I mean, just going back, like, you know, you, you worked for Aaron Peskin. The, you know, you obviously had conversations in and around uh, Peskin's office. Like, what was that? What were some of those conversations like? Did it ever get to a point where it was a, it got a little spicy? When I was in government or uh, as? No, when you were at Airbnb. Um, listen, I mean, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for, uh, for the supervisor. He's been in San Francisco politics for pretty much the entire time that I have, I've lived in the city off and on. I mean, he's been a fixture here. Um, the guy's basically rewritten the planning code in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, obviously also a controversial figure here. Um, you know, and, and he, he's a very strong advocate for the, the, the causes that he cares about and, Aaron uh, gave me some very good advice early in the process. You know, he said, in cities like ours, you know how these issues go. They're the, the, the flash in the pan issues. They get really big. They burn really bright. They consume everyone's attention. And then we move on, like the Google buses. Do you remember when people were vomiting on Google buses in the Bay Area, right? Um, and, and there were blockades and there were neighborhood protests. And look, as someone who worked for a tech company, these things were annoying. I lived near Dolores <laughs> Park. I took pictures in the morning yeah. of the eight buses coming from both directions to, to that intersection in front of my house. It, with blocking, you know, the preschool class couldn't cross the street, all holding the same little rope, right? So these are real issues um, that we've struggled with. But that came, it blew up, it got resolved, we moved on. And then there are the fights that just never end, that take decades, fights around very important big issues like rent control or, you know, what are solutions to the unhoused people on the streets? And you know, it's like, you want to be the former, right? You can blow up, you can have this big fight, and then you got to resolve it. Don't become the fight that never ends because that's not where you want to be. Um, and I think that was really prescient advice, you know, from someone who was an early mentor for me in my career. Yeah, that's that, that's great advice. Um, and you know, Chef is definitely lucky to have you. And um, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from your both of your experience, and and I guess a little bit from mine, probably less. Um, I want to ask you a question, Chris. Are you, are you okay with this, David? Is um, so 
so Chris has now ascended into the heights of, you know, VC land. He's, he's now a person who's been a practitioner and now who gets to kind of oversee or help uh, tons and tons of interesting companies in the craft portfolio. Um, it's obviously hard to go probably deep on all these things, but is there like a general playbook that you try and help folks understand that are maybe new to this uh, environment or find that their growth is really dependent on their ability to kind of negotiate successfully with uh, elected officials? Like, how are you advising so many folks at one time? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And, um, you know, when I first started doing this at Craft uh, um, about a year ago, uh, I came in with a lot of grand plans and and ideas for how to be really nuanced and deep on uh, on on how companies, particularly early stage companies, should view the broader government relations apparatus. When I say broader, it's because I've always thought that there's uh, multiple components to it. We talked about it earlier. Definitely public affairs and community affairs and campaign. Uh, there's you know a deep knowledge of policy, which is sort of the the legal aspects of of uh, of the situation. And then there's government relations, which is the pure lobbying. And I realized that I needed to really start at a much, at a much ma- more macro level at, at this point, because you've got young founders, most of which have been product and dev folks or engineers. Um, they maybe don't have the direct experience. Maybe no, some of them have never spoken to an elected official that they know of. Um, so how do you get them? And this goes back to that, your idea about doing a show on founders. I think it's a good idea. Um, how do you get folks to kind of understand where they need to be on this? And what I've been able to, to come up with, and I'm still refining is a process that leans in pretty heavily, uh, in some areas well, with some founders that maybe are a little afraid of it. I don't, eh, fear is probably not the right way to put it, you know, just, they don't have the experience with it. And, you know, what you don't know about, you don't lean into um, and getting them to understand that they can lean into it and giving some really basic things to think about, about, you know, think things like don't, you may not want to hire a lobbyist if you don't know what the lobbyist is going to say. So maybe we spend a little bit of time, come up with a story and a narrative that meets the policy objectives and go in and have some, mm-hmm. some, uh, some, some GR meetings. Um Things like developing an idea for who your delegation is, right? Like if, if you don't if if you don't know who you, the mayor is of the city in which you are headquartered. Now, <clears throat> granted, a lot of them are San Francisco, and they know London Breed's their mayor. But you uh, you two wouldn't be surprised uh, that a lot of people don't know that. Um, and if you're just getting into this, then maybe you start doing some basic research. You help them figure out like where do you stand with elected officials. So. Coming up with those those ideas and, and mm-hmm. moving them forward with those companies is important. And then you're lucky enough to have a David Owen sitting at Chef, uh, one of my favorite investments of crafts. And you know we connect on a fairly regular basis. And I would and we go, I'd say, not as deep into like the pure strategy because I think David has his. I, I'm, I'm not going to step in and tell him what strategy to have. Um, but, you know, I can be a sounding board for what he's doing uh, and what he needs. And that's my goal, really, is to kind of help these these companies have a direction and, you know, kind of teach them how to fish at this point. Yeah, I'd say I, I look forward to our discussions that are that are wide ranging. I mean, we spend a lot of time on, you know, uh, all things 
you know, business, but it's also, I mean, Chris is just a fascinating guy, right? And it's a, it's a lot of fun just to hear the benefit of his great wisdom uh, and experience. And he seems to know someone everywhere. So that's also uh, quite nice. Um, you, you should, you, you and my wife have been talking cause she's, she's convinced that I know everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, look, di- both of you are, um, I, I, I'm lucky to have the two of you as contemporaries and peers in this broader space. I think between the three of us, we know a lot of the people that do this and do it well. And I would say you two are two of the best. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time and, uh, and, and joining me today and making these sort of quasi guest host duties, uh, really, really easy and fascinating. And I'd like to thank the audience for joining us. Like I said, Jim will be back next week. You can find, uh, political life on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can subscribe to our newsletter at politicallife.net. I want to thank DMAC. Thank you, DMAC for joining. Great questions as always, man. Love the opportunity and what a fun time. We should do this more often. Let's do it in person soon. Yeah, definitely. And thank you, David Owen from Chef uh, for joining. And hopefully we'll get a chance for you and Jim to do this as well at some point down the road. And you can update the audience on how things are going at Chef. So thanks, everybody. See you next time.